Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Quick note about the foundation. We've started on our massive literature review of the possible treatments for anxiety and depression. Now, the premise is that if you go to any particular practitioner, they may know 2 3% of all the possible treatments. But what if we were able to gather 20% of all the possible treatments? I think if so, that would be a big-time home run, and it would help people suffering or people that know people that suffer to you know, seek out the help they need and, and find it themselves and not just be confined to one or two modalities. So to find out more, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And we need your help, donations, attention, support, et cetera. Thank you. Today, my guest is uh, Dr. Joanne Lysett. Uh, she's an associate professor. She does cancer immunology, and she's part of the immunology, immunotherapy group lead. Uh, this is all at uh, Trinity College. Joanne, thank you for coming. How are you doing? No problem. Thanks for having me. Well, tell me about uh, your work. How did you get interested in cancer and immunology? And then I'll ask you about what you're working on right now. Okay, great. Yeah, so I'm a tumor immunologist, and I've been working in the area of cancer immunology for just over 20 years now. So I was always interested, I suppose, in factors that could influence the ability of the immune system to detect and also kill cancer cells. So I suppose taking into account that the immune response to cancer is quite unusual in that you're asking the body for an autoimmune response, essentially. So you're asking the body to attack and kill its own cells. And there's so many inherent built-in mechanisms to prevent this type of response, essentially to prevent autoimmunity. So already the immune system has a huge hurdle to get over before you even start looking at other factors that can influence the effectiveness of an anti-tumor immune response. Is it, do you think it's that the body perceives the cancer cells as self, or do you think that they perceive them as other? And then in the process of attacking the cancer cells, you know, the cancer sends off signals to throw the hound off the scent essentially and confuse this, this recognition of other and therefore stop the attack. 
Yeah, I think early on in the development or the mutation of a cell towards malignancy, they're more self-normal like. So it's harder then for the immune system to tell the difference between a normal cell and a healthy cell. And it's only as they acquire more and more mutations that they look much more different than an abnormal cell. So very often some of the early responses to cancer would be not necessarily cancer specific. It's just the immune system noting that there's something different about that cell. So we're just going to kill off that cell. They know it's not healthy. But then further on, as the cancer develops, it takes on these multiple different strategies to actually actively stop the immune system from killing them. So the immune system quite effectively can recognize certain cancer cells. It's just that the tumor has all these kind of protective mechanisms in place to stop the immune system from functioning properly. So at no point you think that the uh, the cancer cells are observed to be other? They're, but the whole time the body thinks that it's just regular cells? Or like what, what is the mechanism by which cancers are attacked sometimes, but other times they're not? I think, as I was saying early on, they can have a very different appearance to healthy cells. For example, natural killer cells are very good at identifying abnormal cancer cells compared to healthy cells that could be just adjacent to it. And they would do this by, you know, having a different expression level of certain molecules on the the cell surface. And that's what alerts the, the tumor cells. So I don't think they see it as being not self. They just see it as being abnormal. Okay. In, in seeing it as abnormal, what does the immune response look like? And then when there's a, uh, you know, a defense mechanism from the cancer cells where they're hiding from the immune system or obfuscating it or interfering somehow, what does that look like? And how does that change the, the immunolog- immunological rec- recognition and attack on the cells? So again, there's so many ways that the tumors can evade detection and killing by the, by the immune system. So there's, again, many different mechanisms and it's, it can be cell type specific. So, you know, the tumor cell themselves can take on lots of different mechanisms, but it is organ specific. It's cancer type specific. So you could, as I was listening to one of your other podcasts there, there there's hundreds and hundreds of different mechanisms that the, the tumor cells can use to evade killing by the, by the immune system. So in particular, what are you studying about the immune response? I mean, what, you know, you said there's many different ways. So what have you focused in on? So our research really is focused on different factors that they can be altered within the tumor microenvironment that can impact the anti-tumor immune response. So we're very interested in how internal factors and also external factors can impact the anti-tumor immune response. So when I say internal factors, I'm talking about physical features of the tumor microenvironment. So this could include hypoxia, which is, you know, a lack of oxygen uh, within the tumor tissue itself. It could be a lack of or a competition for nutrients. So that's a competition between the growing tumor cells. They need nutrients to proliferate and divide, but also the immune cells also need those nutrients to carry out their functions. There's a lack of blood supply in the tumor microenvironment, and also it's quite an acidic microenvironment. Again, that has an impact on the the ability of the immune cells to function. And we're also very interested in the impact of external factors. So for example, what impact does cancer surgery or chemotherapies or radiation treatment have on the anti-tumor immune response. And we're also particularly interested in lifestyle factors such as obesity. So how does obesity also impact the anti-tumor immune response? So there's lots of factors, both internal and external factors 
that can have a profound effect on the ability of the immune system to detect and also kill those cancer cells. So there's lots of different hurdles and we're particularly interested in those factors in regards to immunotherapy. So you really have to understand what's going on within the tumor microenvironment of your cancer type of interest to really develop or improve upon current treatments. Um, So we do a lot of work on immune checkpoint inhibitors, as I'm sure you're you're well aware of them, Um, but they're you know, as successful as they have been, they will only offer long-term benefit to about 20 to 30% of patients. So while there's huge promise in the area, there's so much research that still needs to be done. So we can greatly improve those response rates and get them well up from 30%. So what do are, what are some of the therapies look like that, uh, you know, I guess either boost the immune system or, uh, you know, give it a pair of glasses so that it can see that, you know, these are bad cells that need to be gotten rid of? Yeah, so there's lots of different options. So like I said, one of the things we're looking at is the effect of individual different types of chemotherapy in combination with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So there's some chemotherapies that will be immune suppressive um, and they can be when chemotherapies are given to a patient, they're given as a regimen. So there's a number of different chemotherapies given together. Some of them can boost the immune system. Some of them can be quite suppressive to the immune system. So we're looking at those regimens, but we're looking at the chemotherapies individually to see which ones would be better to be used in combination with immune checkpoint inhibitors. Similarly, with radiotherapy, the different doses of radiotherapy can have an immune stimulatory or an immune inhibitory outcome as well for the anti-tumor immune response. So both the chemotherapy and radiotherapy can kill cancer cells. Obviously, that's their main goal. But as a result of doing that, the tumor cells themselves become more mutated, they're dying, they're releasing their antigens. And as a result, they can activate the immune cells that are in the tumor microenvironment to respond against those tumors. They also develop a lot of neoantigens, so new antigens that the immune system hasn't seen before. So the potential of generating or reinvigorating an ongoing immune response is heightened. When you combine, say, chemotherapy and radiotherapy with an immune checkpoint inhibitor. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, from what I've seen, I mean, chemotherapy and radiotherapy seems to encourage the heterogeneity of tumors and it makes them more aggressive and more invasive, even if they go through a period of you know latency or not much activity. So, I mean, what, do you have to include the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy with checkpoint inhibitors or has anyone tried just the checkpoint inhibitors on their own? Oh, yes. Um, you don't necessarily have to, but there's certain cancer types that are, I suppose, called cold cancers or immune excluded cancers. And it's thought that those cancers in particular would respond quite well to the combination chemotherapies or radiotherapy because you're altering the immune response. and. And you're altering the infiltration of immune cells. And that's the key thing. Nearly all cancer types show a better outcome the more immune cells you have in there. So by no means do you have to include chemotherapy and radiotherapy. But for some cancers, 
you know, there is a rationale for doing that. There's other options, you know, you can try immune checkpoints alone and that's been tested in clinical trials and approved for a number of different cancer types. But what now they're showing is that even combining two immune checkpoints together, if they have slightly different targets and different functions, you could have better outcomes as well than having an immunotherapy or an immune checkpoint therapy alone. There's also other potential options as well of, you know, using other molecules called co-stimulatory molecules. So targeting, targeting them. So again, it's just another boost to the immune system. Really what you're trying to do with all immunotherapy is trying to break tolerance. And really it's kind of trying to give almost a kick to the immune system. You know, when it's tired, it's exhausted. Um, so that's really what immunotherapy is trying to do. So there's so many different combination options out there um, that are in clinical trials, some which have been approved, some which are still at earlier stages. So how do checkpoint inhibitors work? So immune checkpoint inhibitors. So immune checkpoints themselves are, again, very similar to a lot of pathways in cancer. Their role is in homeostasis, essentially. So they're really there to switch off an immune response you say in tissue damage, for example, or an injury, you don't want the immune system switched on for too long. So the role of immune checkpoints is once they've done their job, they're essentially switched off. And that's what immune checkpoints do. It keeps the immune system in check, as their name would suggest. So immune checkpoint inhibitors, what they're doing is blocking that inhibitory signal that the immune system would normally get, and particularly T cells, that signal that they would get to switch off and, you know, stand down. So these inhibitors stop that signal. And essentially what they're doing is keeping the T cells switched on for longer. So if they're already responding to a tumor antigen and killing tumors, this essentially will let them keep killing those tumor cells for longer. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So I mean, what's the view? Is it that the, again, the cancer cells are fooling, tricking, or up or down regulating various aspects of the immune system? Or is that the immune system is just, quote unquote, tired or exhausted? It's a bit of both. Um, Again, the tumor cells are so adaptable, and they can adapt and adopt a lot of natural homeostatic pathways that are in place that, you know, you'd get in any normal tissue. But the tumor cells are very good at using these pathways to protect themselves, essentially. So it's a bit of both. Like, just, as I said, like it's a, it's you're asking the body to attack and kill itself. So before you even get started, there's a major hurdle in the way of an anti-tumor immune response. So, again, the, it's an uphill battle, really, for the immune system to actually detect, recognize the tumor antigen uh, and melt a response to it. So the T cells do I mean, get exhausted. I mean, does it, it, in order to have any immune response at all, it has to be able to recognize, again, that this material is either no good or foreign or something. So the fact that it may be exhausted means that it's been exerting itself and it has recognized it. But why would the, either the recognition stops or, again, it just run out of resources to continue? It's that, it's like that normal process of, you know, they can only, they only have a certain lifespan. And they have been killing tumor cells all along. And essentially, they do become exhausted. They are working in such a hostile environment of the tumor. So as I said, there's a low oxygen content. It's quite acidic. There's a lot of interstitial pressure because the the cells are growing controlled. So there's lack of structure there. So they do become exhausted. That's where those immune checkpoint inhibitors come in and give that extra boost to the cells. So they don't switch off and they don't die off. They keep killing the cancer cells. Well, besides checkpoint inhibitors, are there other uh, drugs or mechanisms by which you can activate the immune system 
you know, to recognize and, and go after cancer cells? Yeah, sorry, that was the cosymmetry molecules. So there is another, again, a, a number of clinical trials looking at using these other signals to keep T-cells switched on for longer. Essentially, the premise is the same, that you're trying to keep the T-cells active and actively killing cancer cells. So there's other signals that a T-cell needs when it's being activated originally. So when it's recognizing the tumor antigen at the start, it also needs a second signal called co-stimulation. And so really what the co-stimulation targeting those pathways is almost artificially given that second signal to the T-cell. So again, in a way, it's trying to circumvent any immune evasion strategies that the tumor cells might be using to keep the T cells from being activated in the first place. So it's just another potential combination. Is it that there's not enough T cells at some point, or is it just the T cells for some reason are getting signaling not to be active? So there's enough of them, but they're just not working. Thing, I suppose, is comes down to how many antigens are, you know, being presented by cells called dendritic cells. So they have to go from the tumor, pick up the, the tumor antigens and travel back to a draining lymph node. And then they have to come in contact with a T cell that recognizes that antigen. And it's only when that particular T cell recognizes the antigen, then it will undergo what's called clonal expansion, where that one T cell will proliferate and replicate itself, essentially. But then It has to make its way back to the tumor. And again, the tumor can kill off the T cells before they actually make it into the tumor themselves. And they can stop the T cells from trafficking to the tumor a number of different ways. Physically, they can stop it from actually entering the tumor as well. So, you know, certain cancers, such as pancreatic cancer, are very fibrous, what's called a desmoplastic reaction. So physically, it's very hard for cells to get in there. But there's lots of different ways that a tumor can actually kill off those T cells before they actually make it, even if they recognize the the cancer cells themselves. So again, going back to the fact that you're, you know, looking for an immune response against a self antigen as such, generally T cells that respond strongly to self antigens are killed off in the thymus, even very early in their development. So the antigen that they're responding to has to be significantly different to normal self antigens. Otherwise, you'd have your T cells attacking all healthy cells as well. So again, it's a difficult one and it's very different to the immune response that you'd get, say, to bacteria or under other pathogens. You know, they're foreign to the body. It's very easy for the immune system to recognize them as being different and foreign and eliminate them. So again, it's just one of those major hurdles that the, the immune system has to overcome when identifying and killing a, a tumor. But when using immunotherapy, at the same time, would it make sense to, you know, poke, poke the cancer and make it upregulate its activity, its metabolic action, so that more antigens are produced and overexpressed at the same time you have the checkpoint inhibitor and now more T cells are awakened to go after them? Would those two together work? Yeah, absolutely. And that comes back to why we'd use chemotherapy and radiotherapy in combination, because that's exactly what they do. So the chemotherapy will, for quickly or rapidly proliferating tumor cells, they cause a lot of damage and stress in the tumor cells and the same with radiation treatment. So again, that causes stress and mutations in the tumor cells, which again makes them even more different to normal cells. So that allows the immune system to recognize them as being cancer cells. So that's the premise really behind combining chemotherapy and radiotherapy with immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. But since uh, chemo is essentially poison and it attacks fast dividing cells, 
if you introduce, say, a checkpoint inhibitor at the same time or other immune-boosting substance, what happens in the tissues that are not cancer cells but are fast dividing like hair, nails, and I don't know where else, would this also turn the immune system against those tissues? Because again, they're, they're susceptible to the chemo, they're activated, they may be mutating, they may you know, appear to be bad cells, I guess, for lack of a better word, and therefore need to be eliminated. Yeah, like I think, as you know, like the side effects of chemo will target those rapidly dividing cells. And that's where you get obviously the, the toxic side effects. The thing, I suppose, with those cells is that they're not they're still normal cells. The only reason that they're being killed off by systemic treatments such as chemotherapy is that they're rapidly dividing. The difference, I suppose, with the tumor cells is that there's potentially already an ongoing immune response there before it was even clinically detected. So all you're doing is boosting that immune response, essentially. But there doesn't appear to be uh, side effects to other tissues or preferential tissues if you're doing, again, an immune therapy along with chemo or radiotherapy. Is there any nasty side effects or has it been clinically looked at yet? Yeah, no, there's plenty of side effects, unfortunately, with every therapy, including immune checkpoint therapy. You're switching on as a systemic treatment like chemotherapy, so it's not targeted to the tumor site. So you do get a lot of immune inflammatory related side effects, which can be fatal. Very often they're not, and they can be quite easily enough controlled with steroids. Obviously, there's a lot of research ongoing to identify if there is something different about patients who suffer these adverse reactions to immunotherapy as opposed to patients who don't. And can they be managed better, essentially? Again, it's such a rapidly progressing field, you know, and there wasn't an element, I suppose, of learning on the job when epilimumab was first used in the clinic. And But I think we've learned an awful lot since then on how to manage side effects. And thankfully, I suppose, with the newer immune checkpoint inhibitors, there seems to be less and less side effects, albeit it could be that they're just being monitored and managed better as a result. But definitely with all systemic treatments like immunotherapy and with chemotherapy, you are going to get those those side effects. So has um, immune stimulating therapies been tried with radiotherapy only versus chemotherapy only? And what's the difference between radiotherapy assisted immunological intervention versus chemotherapy ones? Um, no, they have been used together. Um, certain cancers will be treated with chemoradiation treatment and they'd be given immune checkpoint inhibitors as well. And um, what we do know when you're looking at them individually is that they can have very similar effects. As I said, though, some chemos can be immunosuppressive and some can be immune stimulatory. Um, again, the radiation, it's very dose dependent. Um, if you go too high with the radiation dose, you're activating other pathways which tend to be immunosuppressive. Again, too low, it's not enough to change the tumor sufficiently to get that immune response. So there, there is this almost Goldilocks middle dosage that can be used. But again, this is very cancer type specific. The chemotherapies then, as I said, the problem is a lot of regimens will include multiple chemotherapies, some of which can stimulate an immune response, some of which can suppress an immune response. Uh, And really you're looking at the overall outcome of those combination chemotherapies. But generally, you know, it can depend as well on the dose of the chemotherapy as well. So There's a lot of different factors and, you know, it's quite difficult to tease them out, especially when you're looking at patients who would have received multiple treatments, multiple rounds of chemotherapy, multiple rounds of radiation treatment, and then they're getting their immunotherapy as well. So there's, again, a lot of trials looking at when's the best time to give immunotherapy. Is it at the same time as chemoradiation or is it after? 
So is it enough to leave the the chemotherapy, the radiation treatment um, time to change the tumor microenvironment and then you come in with your immunotherapy? Or some trials are actually looking at them together. And in upper GI cancer, which is the cancer type I work at, there's a number of different trials that are looking at, you know, the timing and the scheduling of giving immune checkpoint inhibitors. And it was the Checkmate 649 trial that was just um, published earlier this year. And they looked at giving chemotherapy with nivolumab, which is an anti-PD-1 inhibitor. And they found there was a much better overall survival and progression-free survival in patients who had received the chemotherapy with the immune checkpoint inhibitor compared to patients who just got chemotherapy alone. And there's multiple trials for a number of different cancer types showing that combining treatments can be better, but it also depends on whether it's given prior to surgery or given after surgery as well. Has anyone done a study across many different kinds of cancers whereby this combination, you know, the checkpoint inhibitor plus chemo and radiotherapy works better for some and not for others or differently for some and not for others? Like, has anyone done a study of, I know there's probably hundreds of kinds of cancers, but do there appear to be trends or preferences in which this works better versus others? Yeah, so it really does depend on the cancer type. Like you said, there's hundreds of types of cancer and some cancer types wouldn't even have had any trials with immunotherapies in them. But it is known that certain cancer types have, for example, a higher mutational burden. And so they're, you know, easy ones for the immune system to recognize. And then they tend to do better with combination treatments as well. But very often, a lot of the clinical trials would be carried out what's called common cancers. So, you know, to, to do these clinical trials, you need a large number of patients as well. So the most successful ones would be obviously melanoma, lung cancer, renal cancer. But there's been a lot of studies in upper GI cancer, as I mentioned, that's the cancer types that I work in. So gastric and esophageal cancers as well. So they tend to have a lot a high mutational burden as well. And um, so their cancer cells have lots of mutations in them. So again, just combining chemotherapy and radiotherapy with immunotherapy seems to have a better outcome in certain cancer types of ours. Yeah. Are there any cancers that have a very unusual reaction to this combo? I'm not aware of any study that has an unusual reaction. I suppose you either have a good response or a poor response. And again, it it can depend on the cancer type. So if the cancer type is typically, as I described earlier, a cold tumor or a non-inflamed or non-immune infiltrated tumor, it's much harder to get a positive response with immunotherapy. And there is some studies to show that combining chemotherapy and radiotherapy with immunotherapy in those cancer types can improve the outcome over just immunotherapy alone. But again, you know, it it is very cancer type specific. But in terms of unusual outcomes, generally, it's just either a good response or a poor response. Well, what are some of the other hallmarks that would make the response good or bad? You know, are late stage cancers easier or harder to treat with this combined therapy? Or like you mentioned something about surgery before or after surgery better? You know, what are some other factors that make this work or not work? Yeah, and, and that's a, it's a great question. And it's, a, it's a hard question to answer. So again, if I go back to esophageal cancer, you know, there is a number of studies looking at, is it better to give, or when is it best to give immune checkpoint inhibitor studies? So a lot of the earlier studies would have been carried out in patients with advanced disease or metastatic disease. Um, and that's the way most new treatments are tested or, uh, to start with. But there is now 
a real move towards giving immunotherapy and immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy earlier on in the treatment schedule. So I'd mentioned the, the Checkmate 649 trial, and that was given before surgery, along with chemotherapy, and that had a very good outcome. But there's another trial, for example, it was the Checkmate 577 trial. And again, that was just published earlier this year. And what they did was looked at giving the it was anti-PD-1 avilumab treatment as well, but it was just after surgery. So, for example, upper GI cancers and esophageal cancer um, in particular, about almost 40% of those patients will have disease recurrence after surgery and almost 80% of them will be in the first two years. So there's a really high risk of disease recurrence in those patients. So that Checkmate 577 trial looked at giving the anti-PD-1 treatment four to six weeks after surgery. And they found that the overall survival actually, uh, or disease-free survival doubled with those patients who received immunotherapy post-surgery. So you kind of think you've removed the surgery or removed the tumor with surgery, but there's still obviously some resident tumor cells still left there. And they're the ones that will recur and they're associated, significantly associated with cancer mortality as well. So this is, I suppose, a newer area for immune checkpoint inhibitors to be used to prevent disease recurrence and also metastatic disease as a result. So there's definitely a push to giving immune checkpoint inhibitors earlier as either first line treatments or as adjuvant treatments after surgery, rather than, you know, the initial trials were showing success, which was fantastic in later stage patients and metastatic patients. There's definitely a move now to looking at when's the most optimal time and the optimal combination treatments to give patients. Well, very good. What, um, what do you think is going to be possible in the next few years? And what's going to really take a lot longer, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years to come through? Well, I think there's been such amazing progress in the last 10 years in immunotherapy. And I think even looking at the COVID vaccine research and, you know, everyone, the mass of research that was carried out and everyone was, you know, focused on the same goal. You could see the type of achievement that was that was obtained there, you know, in such a short space of time. And I think there's such a groundswell of interest and research in immunotherapy as well. Um, And there's so much information being gathered at the moment that I think you're going to see much more rapid progression in this field in the next few years. Um, Like I'd mentioned, I think we're going to know a lot more about, you know, identifying which patients will or won't respond to immunotherapy because, as I'd mentioned, only 20 to 30% of patients actually respond. So there's huge scope there for improving response rates. So if we could identify biomarkers of patients who do respond to a certain immunotherapy and patients who don't, just as importantly, then you could almost tailor these treatments to patients. I think the technology is moving as well so fast. You know, there's a lot of new single cell kind of analysis technologies out there that's you know, uncovering so much more information about what's going on in the tumor pre and post immunotherapy treatment. So you can see how the immunotherapy is changing the tumor microenvironment. So I think there's going to be a real explosion of new treatments, new combination treatments and new approvals for immunotherapy coming down the line. So it's an absolutely fantastic time to be working in immunotherapy. And as I said, I think there's such a huge interest in this area, not only from people working in the area, but even the general public have such an interest and a knowledge in this area 
that you didn't see with other treatments, even like molecular targeted therapies or chemotherapy and radiation treatment. I think there's been a real public interest and rightly so in immune checkpoint inhibitors because they have been transformative for patients and offered, you know, treatment options for oncologists and their patients. And, you know, they're extending life in many cases, even offering a cure for certain cases as well. So I think the future is very bright in this area and it's a great area to be working at the moment. Well, very good. Uh, Joanne, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Um, They can look on the Trinity website. So it's www.trinity.rtcd.ie. Also on Twitter, I'm at Joanne Lysett on Twitter as well. Um, You can also look up our work. Um, We've just, the last few years, formed a Trinity St. James's Cancer Institute as well. So you could look up the website there. Well, very good. Joanne, I know it's late, but again, thank you for coming and uh, sharing your wisdom. No problem. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.